What a spirit of joy in this place today. I love it. Um, yeah, God is good. All right, this morning we are starting the series called Hereafter, as, as has been mentioned. What the Bible says about life after death and what lies ahead. In 2004, Kevin Malarkey and his son Alex were in a terrible car accident in Ohio. In Ohio. Yeah, we've got Ohio already represented here. Um, following the accident, Alex, age six, spent two months in a coma and woke up paralyzed. During his recovery period to follow, he recounted to his parents a compelling tale of dying and visiting heaven. He described seeing angels, meeting Jesus, hearing otherworldly music, and much more. The father, Kevin, wrote a book of these stories called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, and it became an international bestseller and a film. Many found the book inspiring and faith-affirming. To this day, it has Amazon, Amazon five-star reviews, and they include statements such as an astounding, revealing insight into what awaits us in heaven, and an incredible experience, very inspiring. There's a problem, though. It was all a lie. It was all a lie. Alex and his dad really did have a terrible car accident. But what, when Alex was 16 years old, he shared the following. He said, I, I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. I did not die. I did not go to heaven. When I made the claims, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. Then he says this. They should read the Bible, which is enough. I remember a time when these sorts of books were very popular in evangelical circles. Heaven is for real. Remember that one? 90 minutes in heaven, 23 minutes in hell. I'm not going to comment on the validity of any of those stories. That's not my place, and, and I don't know. I mean, who am I to say? But I approached all of those sorts of books with a lot of skepticism. Reading about near-death experiences, or NDEs as they're called, are one way that many, many people try to gain an understanding of the afterlife. There are thousands of accounts that you can read online and in books. People naturally want to know what lies beyond the grave. And naturally, people have been searching for answers to those sorts of questions from all sorts of sources for a long time. Some of those sources are pop culture, music, movies, books, cartoons, comic strips like The Far Side, uh, TV shows like The Good Place and Touched by an Angel and Canadian Gem Twice in a Lifetime, starring Canadian icon Al Waxman. Yes, King of Kensington. We got any Kings of Ken King of Kensington fans here? That's going way back. Um, history and art is another way that a lot of our ideas about the afterlife are informed. Uh, the paintings of Michelangelo, the writings of the medieval period like Dante, even the influence of ancient Greek mythology. A lot of what people believe today has been shaped by these things, including what a lot of Christians believe. Some people today consult mediums to try and supposedly communicate with the dead or search through world religions or spirituality for answers. These inform their understanding of the afterlife as well. There are also those who don't believe in any afterlife. 
And those beliefs are shaped by their appeal to science and reason, which they feel sufficiently disprove the existence of God or anything supernatural. There are so many sources that influence our imagination when we think about heaven and hell and the afterlife and the future and what lies ahead. But I agree with Alex Malarkey, not last name perhaps appropriate, um, the boy who didn't come back from heaven, when he says, the Bible is enough. The Bible is enough. We're starting with an assumption in this series, and I guess in our church in general, that we trust that the Bible is God's word. The Bible is reliable, trustworthy. We could spend a whole weekend talking about why we believe that the Bible is reliable and trustworthy, but we're not going to get into that today. But that's our starting point, that the Bible is a source of truth, the source of truth. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I would rather bet my eternity on God's revelation than on human observation. Yeah? That's kind of a big risk to take. So that's why the subtitle of this series is What the Bible Says About Life After Death and What Lies Ahead. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what ancient philosophers thought or what a guy who claims to have gone to heaven has to say. Just give me the scriptures. Give me the scriptures. Let it speak to us unfiltered. So that's what I'm about to do over the next uh, seven Sundays, including today. We're going to explore the Bible together. We're going to learn about several different um, topics related to this theme. And here's what they are. This is where we're going in this series. Uh, We're going to learn about the present afterlife, which is sometimes called the intermediate states. You can go to the next slide, please. The intermediate states. This is the present afterlife. Where do people go when they die today? We're going to learn about the second coming of Christ. And we're probably going to unteach, I'm probably going to unteach some things that you may have learned over the years that I don't think hold up to the scrutiny of God's word. So that'll be a nice a controversial one, get me in trouble. Um, uh, we're going to learn about the future resurrection from the dead, the great hope that we have and what our new bodies will be like. We're going to explore a true biblical understanding of hell and the fate of the unsaved. That's another one's going to get me in trouble, I'm sure. And finally, we will learn about the nature of heaven, the future, the final heaven that is to come when Christ returns. The heaven that hasn't happened yet, but that we look forward to as believers in Jesus Christ. What will it be like? What will we do there? And so on. So, I'm really excited about this. These are things that I get... I'm really interested in, and I've done a lot of study on these topics over the years. So, I'm... um, I'm eager to get started. And I have come to the conclusion over the years that many Christians don't have a truly biblical understanding of what the Bible actually teaches about these things. We have a little bit of Bible mixed in with a whole lot of pop culture and art and hymns and funeral sermons and cream cheese commercials that have painted for us a picture for us that is something like this. This is what a lot of Christians would say if you were to sum up what's the deal in the afterlife. They would say, well, when, your body die, when you die, your body goes to the grave and your soul or spirit, that is, if you've trusted in Christ as your savior, goes to heaven where you'll enter the pearly gates and walk on streets of gold in the great heavenly city reunited with loved ones for eternity. Or 
If you haven't trusted in Christ as your Savior, your soul or spirit will go to hell, where you'll experience suffering, torture, misery, and regret, apart from the presence of God for eternity. Now, some of you are saying, yeah, that sounds like that's what I believe. And that, but the problem is that that's almost entirely wrong. That is almost entirely wrong. There's some elements of truth in that, but there's so much in there that is not really what the Bible teaches. So, I want you to erase from your imagination almost everything you, you've learned in the past and thought that you understand about heaven and hell and come with an open mind to the pages of Scripture because the Bible is enough. Before we get into the specifics in the coming weeks, it's necessary for us to see the big picture, to grasp the whole narrative of history and the future of the universe. Because everything else we will learn together only becomes clear when we understand these foundational truths, this grand narrative of history as told through the scriptures. The title of the message this morning is Between Two Gardens. Between Two Gardens, the history of heaven. Our story begins at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Might as well start at the very beginning. And this is what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens there is not referring to heaven in terms of, you know, this uh, afterlife kind of heaven where God is, but referring to the heavens, meaning outer space and the atmosphere, everything that exists, the whole universe, God created it all. Now, that either happened 10,000 years ago, if you're a young earth creationist, or 13.8 billion years ago, uh, if you adhere to modern scientific consensus. Either way, God is the one who sparked the existence of everything that is. And as he created, it tells us in Genesis that he said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. Genesis paints an image of all creation and God being in harmony, in perfection, most clearly represented in the Garden of Eden as we get to Genesis chapter 2. It says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. God planted a garden, and he planted in the middle of the garden a tree of life in the midst of the garden, the tree of life. That's going to become really important. This garden, this creation, was in a state of total peace, or the Hebrew word shalom. What does that word shalom mean? I like to think of shalom as meaning that we are in harmony with God and with each other and with the creation. That is what shalom means. It means that we are living in harmony, at peace with God, at peace and in harmony with one another, and at peace with the creation. And we see that reflected in the Garden of Eden. We see this relationship with God. Uh, the people, Adam and Eve walked in the garden with the Lord. There was this intimacy, this unity between God and man. We see humans in harmony with one another. In Genesis 2, 25, Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. There was innocence in their relationship. We see uh, the people in harmony with creation. Adam was naming the animals. They were working the land, growing things, being productive. God instructed them to care for it. It was this 
perfect harmony. So this is the picture of shalom. This is what God had intended. Harmony between God and people and creation and access to the tree of life with, which grants eternal life. So the heaven, that realm of God, that, which we're calling heaven or the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God and earth were one, united together. But the option existed, the freedom existed for this garden, this paradise to be broken. And that was necessary for us to have free will. And so it was. It was broken. Adam and Eve were warned of another tree in the garden that if they ate from it, what would happen? They would surely die. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So they ate from the tree. And then everything began to unravel. That shalom was broken. First, their relationship with God, right? They're hiding from God. Now they're ashamed. They're lying to God. Oh, the snake made me do it. That was broken. And then their, relation, their relationship with one another begins to break down. And in Genesis chapter 4, the very next chapter, we see the first murder between Cain and Abel. Creation begins to break down. Work becomes difficult. Thorns and thistles start to grow from the ground, representing the fact that this sin didn't just affect man and the relationship with God and with each other, but it affected all of creation. And they were removed from the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, let's read that together, 22 to 24, it says, Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life, and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim in the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard what? To guard the way to the tree of life. To guard the way from the tree of life. No access to the tree. No eternal life. Assuring them that indeed what he said is true, that they would surely die death would now be a reality for them. So the image after the fall of man in sin is something like this. I'm going to go to the next image here. So now sin has entered the world, and heaven and earth, which had been united, has now become separate. And that white line going across just represents the passage of time. So as the graphics continue, that's what that means. That's the timeline of history. So now... We live in this period of the separation of heaven and earth. There is a separation because of sin. And now death is a reality. So what of the dead? What of the dead? We're talking about now the Old Testament time period. Is there an afterlife for the dead? Not actually all that much in the Old Testament. About, there's not actually all that much in the Old Testament about what happens after death. You might be surprised to hear that. You might think, oh, well, surely there's lots to say about what happens after death, but actually it's really not a big topic of the Old Testament at all. But summed up, in this Old Testament period, before the coming of Jesus Christ, the Bible indicates that when you die, your body goes to the ground, 
and your soul continues to exist to some degree in a place that in the Hebrew is called Sheol, or in the Greek, Hades. Now, you probably have heard Hades from Greek mythology. Uh, Erase that from your mind. Uh, It's just the same word. The Greeks had their own idea of what that is. Um, But uh, the Hebrews, the Hebrew Bible indicates something different. Sheol is the Hebrew word. Hades is the Greek word. Um, Often translated the grave. Uh, What it literally means is the abode of the dead. The abode of the dead. Now, if you have a King James Bible... Your King James Bible will often translate this word as hell in the Old Testament. That's a really bad translation because hell is something entirely different, and we're going to get there eventually. Uh, I hope you're not going to get there, but I mean, in terms of the the series, (laughs) we're going to get there. yeah, it's not, it's not the same thing. You think, you know, hell and the Bible talks about the, you know, the fiery furnace and all. That's not Sheol. That's not Hades. It's something different. Um, the first time Sheol appears in the Bible is Genesis 37. Jacob uh, has, believes he's got a report that his son Joseph has been killed. And he grieves. It says, Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. So Jacob understood that Joseph, thinking he was dead, is in Sheol and assumed he was going to be going to Sheol upon his death as well. In Job, the book of Job, this is another very, very old part of the Old Testament. Job also talks about his own expectation of being in Sheol one day. In Ezekiel 32, it speaks of fallen uh, dead soldiers from many nations, including Israel's enemies, all being together in Sheol. We could keep going. There's about 65 or 66 references to Sheol in the Old Testament. There's debate over whether or not this place, this existence of Sheol, uh, of the continued existence of the soul, uh, was understood as conscious or unconscious. Frankly, I've read the passages on both sides, and I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. I lean towards conscious, but mm, I'm not convinced. So that remains a mystery for me. But it's very clear that in the Old Testament times, this is what is clear, before the Old Testament times, or in the Old Testament times, before the coming of Jesus, everybody who died experienced the same fate. They went to this place, their body went in the ground, and their soul went to this place called Sheol, or Hades. With the exception of who? Enoch and Elijah. That's right. Enoch and Elijah, who the Bible says were translated to heaven. They were taken directly to heaven, which is kind of cool. Okay, so going to heaven when you die, this idea of that we're, when we die, we're going to go to heaven, was not the Jewish understanding and not found in the Old Testament. No, everybody went to Sheol, depicted as a sort of gloomy underworld. So what hope was there? I mean, that seems kind of hopeless and depressing and unjust, Everybody goes to the same place? This doesn't seem right. Well, the hope for those in this place was the hope of resurrection. The hope that at the end of history, at the day of the Lord, as the Old Testament talks about, which we understand now to be the return of Christ one day, 
that, uh, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, that those who are in Sheol or Hades would be released and come back to life. The Old Testament pointed ahead to a day in the future when the Messiah would come. One of the features of this coming of the Messiah is a resurrection of the dead. Daniel 12.2 is the most clear passage about this, where it says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And that was quoted by Jesus and, the, and Paul in the New Testament. Most Jews believe, believed this promise that one day there would be a resurrection from the dead, that those in Sheol would be raised, judged, some to eternal life, and some to eternal destruction. Okay, so that's the reality of heaven and earth and the afterlife in this pre-Jesus period of history, this B.C. period of history, before Christ. And then Jesus comes along. And this arrival of Jesus is the beginning of God's rescue and restoration plan. God comes to be with us. And he has a message. It's good news. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven are synonyms. The first recorded words of Jesus in his ministry are found in Mark Chapter 1, verse 15. Mark is the oldest of the four Gospels, written first. And it says this, The time is fulfilled. Words of Jesus. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Jesus' message wasn't, Turn from your sin and believe in me so that you can go to heaven when you die. That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught, Turn from your sin and believe in me because heaven is coming here and you're going to want to be a part of it. Let me say that again because this is important. I think we, this is where we get, you know, as Baptists and we've been growing up in the church and we've heard our whole lives, Jesus has taught you got to get saved so you can go to heaven. I'm not saying that that is not true because we're going to get there. We'll get there in the future sermons. But that's not what Jesus' main message was. His main message wasn't, Turn from your sin and believe in me so that you can go to heaven. It's not about the hope of heaven. His message, well, going, you know, escaping this world, I'll fly away some glad morning. His message was turn from your sin and believe in me, repent and believe in the gospel because heaven is coming here and you're going to want to be part of it. And indeed, in Jesus, the kingdom of heaven was beginning to overlap with creation once again. Jesus was God bringing heaven to us, in a sense. And the kingdom of God on earth, as we talk about that, and we've talked about that in, in different messages over the last year and months, um, is the sort of infiltration of heaven on earth. It's the kingdom of God coming now, here and now. It's already and not yet. So in the coming weeks, we're going to look at what comes after now? So we've got Jesus has come. What's going to be on this line after? What, how, has thing, how have things changed? We're going to look at what the Bible has to say about the reality of things now and to come. Now that Jesus has come the first time, died on the cross, and rose again. Things have changed. The Old Testament realities around the afterlife are not the same as they once were. 
and the hope of what's to come has become more clear. Jesus will return. That's the second coming. There will be the long-awaited resurrection of the dead and judgment by the Lord and the elimination of evil. After all is said and done, after all these things, and again, we're going to talk about all those things in future messages, what will remain after all of that happens? What will remain is the new heaven and new earth. The kingdom work that Jesus began is completed. It's fully realized as heaven and earth become one once again. Let's go to the very end of the Bible now, Revelation 21 and 22. And let me just give you a little taste of what this says about this hope that we have in Christ. So this is John the Apostle. He has a vision. And he says this. Then I saw in my vision a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone. And by the way, that just doesn't mean that there's not going to be ocean in the future final heaven. Uh, the sea for the Israelite people represented turmoil and chaos and danger and fear and the unknown. They were not a seafaring people. Uh, so that is gone. And that's what that vision represents for, for, uh, for, for John. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Amen. Amen. And what is there in the middle of this beautiful city? If we go to Revelation 22, we have the throne of God, and we have this river of the water of life, clear of crystal, crystal, crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And uh, it says that on each side of the river grew, what? The tree, the tree of life, the very same tree from Eden, now replanted in the garden city of God in the new heaven and the new earth. So it's really a sort of restoration of Eden, of paradise. But now, not just a garden, but a garden city. This broad sweep of history, this is the hope. This is the story. This is what Jesus was talking about when he talked about the kingdom of God coming. Tony Campolo says, there is a growing number of evangelicals who believe that when Christ returns, the earth will be restored and there will be a new society made up of faithful people who will live on this planet in love and justice. Then the world will be as God intended it to be when he created it. That is, in fact, what the Bible teaches, as plain as day, and we will unpack it all as we go along. I titled this message, Between Two Gardens. I took that title from a chapter in a book that I read a few years ago by Lisa Turkhurst. The book is called, It's Not Supposed to Be This Way. 
and the title of the chapter that I was, was Between Two Gardens. She shares in her book about the unfaithfulness of her husband and the breakdown of their marriage as a result of that. She describes how sin and brokenness ripped apart her life and how she found, in the midst of all of that, hope in the Lord. And she says that the brokenness of this world is not the way God intended things to be. It's not how they were meant to be. And I agree with her. We are living in a period of time between two gardens. The Garden of Eden and the future garden city to come after Jesus comes back one day. In the meantime, in the meantime, death and suffering and sin and heartbreak and disease and injustice and war and so on are a part of human existence. But we have hope. We have great hope. Hope that one day the broken cosmos will be fixed. Evil will be eradicated. And those who know Jesus will be resurrected to join him in that place. Amen? Amen. Amen. So if you're feeling very much like you're living between two gardens these days, take heart. Take heart. And hang on to the hope we have in Christ. Let me close with this as the worship team comes. John chapter 14. Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem at this moment in where we're the context of this text. They're in Jerusalem. It's the night before his crucifixion. They've had the Lord's Supper. Things are tense. You could cut the tension with a knife. Jesus has predicted that one of his disciples would betray them. He told Peter that he's going to deny him. They could all sense that the end was near. And I'm sure the disciples were getting anxious, worried about the events to come. There would be blood. There would be suffering. There would be threats to their safety. They would be opposed. This would be the first major test of the church, of the disciples of Jesus. Not what they had imagined when they signed up for this thing. Right? They thought, hey, this guy is the Messiah. He's going to kick the Romans out, and he's going to start set up a, th- a kingdom here on earth and rule and reign in our lifetime. And I'm going to get to sit at his right hand. No, I'm going to get to sit at his right hand. It's going to be so great. Oh, man. And then all of these things start to happen, and things begin to unravel for the disciples. And this is what Jesus says to them in this moment of stress and anxiety. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God or believe in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. Guys, don't be afraid. Something so much better is coming and you're going to be part of it. I'm going to make rooms for each of you in my father's royal household. You're just going to have to wait for it. You're just going to have to wait. Then Thomas, the disciple, says, no, we don't know, Lord. 
We have no idea where you're going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus told him, I am the way. I am the way. I'm the way, Thomas. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. The timeline of history is being written as we speak. And one day it will culminate in the return of Jesus and the full realization of heaven on earth. The Father's kingdom household will be there and there will be a room for you if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, if you belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus is clear about this. He says there is only one way to ensure your room is reserved and it is through him, through believing in and trusting in him as your Lord and your Savior. So I hope that if you have never made that decision to turn your heart in faith towards Christ, that maybe today will be that, the day for you. Now, we didn't have time today uh, to begin answering the question, what happens when people die today? What happens to our bodies and souls? And is it still Sheol, Hades uh, for everyone as we wait for the resurrection? Or has the death of Jesus on the cross changed that? To some degree. My grandma loved Jesus. Where is she, pastor? Good question. Good question. So that's what we're going to talk about next Sunday. The title of the sermon for next Sunday is Where's Grandma? 